I met my good friend recently and he haven't aged a bit. In fact, I think he looks a bit younger today than previously. But well, I'm, I'm very secure. I'm very secure. Don't worry about it. See, brothers and sisters in Christ, the most visible and drastic change that can happen to us is not aging. The most visible and drastic change that can happen to us is the way we live our lives before Christ and the way we live our lives after we believe in Him. And the change is not a cosmetic change. You know, previously, I don't, uh, no, I don't wear a cross, but now after I believe in Jesus, I wear a cross, I carry a Bible around. Neither is it a behavioural change purely. You know, last time I go to the temple, now I go to church. But it's a total transformation from within us that affects how you live your life. You know, sometimes you and I, we are more concerned about our outward appearance than our inward godliness. And no one, trust me, no one has ever come to believe in Jesus Christ because they saw a very handsome man or a very pretty woman. But people do come to believe in Jesus Christ because they saw the godliness in you. So let me ask you a question. How have you changed since you know Jesus Christ? How much of your old self have died? And how have you grown in godliness? Did others notice this spiritual transformation in you? Or are you still the same old self? Now let's look at today's passage from Titus chapter 2 to learn how to live a transformed godly life under God. First, I'd like to introduce you to a group of people, the Cretans. Let's meet the Cretans. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Well, this description of the situation in, Cretan, in Crete rather, is not a pretty one. Who are the Cretans? Well, Titus is the pastor of the church in Crete. First, we notice that... Uh, back one slide. Back the previous slide. Thanks. First, we notice that the Cretan culture is horrible. In verse 12 and 13, it says that Cretans, one of their own prophets, said that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And this testimony is true. See, this is not a criticism of the Cretans by others, but this is coming from one of their own prophets. That you can't trust a Cretan and you can't change a Cretan. And the Apostle Paul quotes this particular philosopher and agrees with his assessment. Now, let me ask you, how would you like to pastor this group of people? Imagine if you are a pastor. Should be quite challenging, isn't it? Well, in Singapore here, we have our own version, a Singaporean version. We are kiasu 
惊死、惊暴、和惊无罪。Meaning that we are kiasu, we are afraid to lose, we are self-centered, selfish people. We are kiasi, afraid to die. We are not very brave, aren't we? In fact, we are quite cowardly. We are kiabo, afraid of our, our wives. We are man-fearer, or rather woman-fearer instead of God-fearer. We are kiabolui. We are afraid that we've got no money. Shows that we have very little faith in God. We are greedy. We are discontented. So likewise, you can't trust a Singaporean. And you can't change a Singaporean. Of course, unless you get his wife's permission. So the Apostle Paul left this task of pastoring the church in Crete to Titus. And if the task at hand is not tough enough, the church in Crete is also plagued by a Jewish group of false teachers, which Paul calls them the circumcision party. In verse 10 and 11, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silent since they are upset, upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So what exactly are the false teachers teaching? We see in verse 14 that they are, that they are teaching Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Their false teaching is upsetting or disrupting families, whole families, and out of self-interest to make a dishonest gain, they sow people lies. And worse, these lies are turning the people away from God's truth. We have that version in church as well. I believe in most churches, or rather in all churches, we have people who will fight tooth and nail over single issues. People who would split the church up and sow discord and division. They will insist on whatever you can fill in the blank. What Bible version we should use. If not, you're not God's people. What music we should sing in church. No, whether the Sabbath day is on a Saturday or a Sunday, they will argue, they will fight, and they will quarrel. But the bottom line is seen in Titus chapter 1, verse 16. This is Paul's assessment of this group of people. In verse 16, next slide, please. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. See, their holy, unholy lives shows us that they don't know the holy God, and they do not have a relationship with God. And this, this is the church that Paul has assigned Titus to. And this is what Titus have at hand. So the question is, is there any hope for this group of horrible people? Can you even change a Cretan? Well, Paul's words to Titus will be instructive to us. How to live a transformed life in Christ? We see in Titus chapter 2, verse 1, this is what Paul wrote to Titus. Next slide. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Paul is saying to Titus that the false teachers taught rubbish and their lives are also rubbish because they are detestable, disobedient and unfit for any good work. Because they don't know God 
and have rejected his words. That's why they taught myths and commands of humans and are turning people away from the truth. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach what matches up with healthy teaching. Ground the church in the Word of God. Teach the Christians how to live according to God's will so that they, the false teachers, or rather they, the church, will live differently from these false teachers. See, brothers and sisters in Christ, healthy teaching leads to healthy living. And God's words have transformational power. Back in Genesis, God spoke and creation, the whole world came to being. God's words have power. It's active and living. And if you are not rooted in God's words, then there will be no transformation in your life. Brothers and sisters in Christ, how much time do you spend reading the Bible each day? Or how much time do you spend reading the newspaper or whatever is on social media? How much time do you spend filling your minds reflecting on God's words? Are we allowing God's words to transform us to be more loving, more patient, and to be kind towards others? So the first step of a transformed life is established by knowing God through His words. Now, what instructions does Paul have for the Christians in Crete? We see these instructions in chapter 2, verse 2 to 10. We see that this set of instructions isn't merely addressed to Cretan culture, but if you observe what Paul is saying, it is grounded in the Word of God, the values of the Bible, sound doctrine. What they believe about God, the fruit of their belief should be expressed in the way they live their lives. So that our, their transformed lives will stand in stark contrast to the uh, culture of lies of Crete. So, first up, who are the, who are the older men in our midst? Okay, uh, those brothers above 60 years old. Okay, 60 years old and above, can I have a show of hand? Okay, here are our, our older men. Thank you for doing that. You are very brave. So, listen up this instruction, to this set of instruction. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So older men are expected to live in such a way that they earn the respect of people both inside and outside the church. Here, Paul is, what Paul is saying is how they live their lives or how we live our lives in the eyes of the world is important. We are to live as light of the world. See, so brothers, you may be a DG leader, an elder, a regular in church, but what does your friends, what does your extended family think about you? Are our actions and words worthy of respect as older men? Or are we just a grouchy old man, always complaining? Are we known for our faith in Christ, our love for God and others? Do we show steadfastness and endurance in our hope in God, regardless of our circumstances in life. In good times, in bad times, 
in sickness, in health, you still show that same steadfastness in hope in God. And for older men, knowing God and His words longer, do people look up to you as a more mature Christian? Brothers, your goal is not retirement. Your goal is to teach and model Christ for the younger generation to make the gospel attractive to them. For people to see this is how the gospel transforms a person in the long run to leave a godly legacy for others to follow, especially our young men. And next, the instructions is to older and younger women. Okay, so I won't ask you to, older women, I won't ask you to put out your hands because this self instruction is intertwined. So listen up. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Society paints old age as something to be dreaded, but the, in the Bible, old is gold. And the Bible often equates youth with folly and age with wisdom, especially in the book of Proverbs. Older women are to be reverent, they are to be holy. The original meaning denotes that they are to act like priestess, to be reverent in the way they live their lives because they have a lot over them. Not slanderers or gossipers or slaves to much wine. As we all know that drunkenness leads to loose tongue. It causes one wants to lose both our tongue, the control of our tongue and our cognition. Instead, older women are to use both their cognition and their tongue to teach the younger women what is good. And what is good according to this passage? Older women are to train your daughters to love their husbands and children. How? Well, by first loving yours. You see, they said that values are caught and not taught. Older sisters in our midst, do you love your husbands? Not based on their worthiness, but based on God's instruction and will. Or do you challenge their authority and always bickering with them? Are you kind and submissive to them? Well, older men, likewise for, you, for us, or for, for you, sorry, I'm not that old, huh? Likewise for you, do you love your wife? Do you model for your sons what it means to be sound in love? Moving on, we see for the younger women, they are to be self-controlled, pure, working at home. I don't think the Apostle Paul is mandating that all younger women must be a stay-at-home mom or wife. But the first priority for people who have been transformed by God, is to care for their families and not to neglect them. There's a similar charge to the elders in Titus chapter 1, verse 6, to care for their families and to get their house in order. 
Christian women must be different from the other women in society who pursue career at the expense and the well-being of their own families. Christian women are to put the welfare of their families above their own pursuit of status, financial security, and recognition. Their godly characters is seen in their care for their families. Well, I know, sisters, what you're thinking right now, you may be thinking to yourself, oh boy, these sets of teachings are so tough. It is almost impossible. Well, it is easy to fake godliness in front of others or even in church for a couple of hours. But we can't fake godliness at home where our families are with us 24-7, where your life under Christ is either truly transformed or not at all. Who you are at home is your true self. And Paul gave us the motivation for leaving out these teachings at the end of verse 5, so that the word of God may not be reviled. How is, the God, how is the word of God reviled when all that our neighbours hear from our homes is shouting, quarrelling and fighting? They cannot see anything special about the gospel because they don't see a difference between a Christian family and a non-Christian one. Verse 6, Likewise, urge the younger man, next slide please, Urge the younger man to be self-controlled. Why is there only one set of instruction for the younger man to be self-controlled? Eh, not fair, isn't it? Well, could it be because these are hormone-rich young men? So obviously, they would need to be self-controlled from sexual temptation, isn't it? Well, it is more than that we see that the Apostle Paul gave a similar set of instruction to his other protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22 to 25. Next slide. This is what Paul wrote to his other protege, Timothy. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Paul's instruction to Timothy is that Timothy is not to be quarrelsome, not to be harsh against those who oppose him, but to be kind, to be gentle, to be patient. That is what self-control is all about. To keep our heads, to control your temperament and speech. So likewise, for Titus, who falls under the category of younger men, Paul's instruction to him is seen in verse 7 and 8. Next slide. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. 
Paul's instruction to Titus, to the younger man, is the same. It's to exemplify what Titus is teaching. Titus is to model good works in all respects. So his congregation, his flock, they must not only hear what he preached, but they must see it in his life. They must see integrity and dignity in both Titus' teaching as well as in his daily conversation. And how we live our lives is the best proof that the gospel is effective. So let me just uh, do a quick survey here. Uh, how many Naomi's have already uh, taken the, the COVID-19 vaccine? Can I have a show of hands? How many in our midst? Okay, I see a few hands coming up. You're very brave, right? You're very brave. And now, guess what? We will all be looking at you. Why? Because you're the best uh, proof, living proof of whether the vaccine is effective or not, isn't it? Right? Most of us are very fearful to take, right? In case take already might have adverse side effects. So now we are looking at you. And for us to know whether the vaccine is effective or not, you must not catch COVID-19. No? <laughs> uh, moving forward, right? So as well as you are untouched by COVID-19, we know that the vaccine is effective and you are living proof. So likewise for us Christians, to know, to know whether the gospel is effective or, or not, people will look at our lives. Whether are we living a holy life, untouched by the world? And if we are to do that, this will silence the opponents of the gospel so that they have nothing evil to say about us. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, for the case of Titus, he faced false teachers in Crete and likewise for Timothy. And I believe you and I, we will face people who will oppose the gospel in our face. But guess what? We must be gracious in the way we engage them. For often, what you speak, or rather how, how you speak, how you respond, speaks louder than what you say to them. See, what's the point of defending the gospel with your words? when your life is an offence to our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you have read the news recently. There was a recent article of a man who went to this store and he took the, uh, the store had this uh, uh, pride flag, the LGBT flag, and he took the flag and threw it at the person because he didn't agree with the LGBT, uh, LGBT teachings. I have no idea if this man is a Christian or not. But if assuming that he is, then I'm certain that Paul's teachings here wouldn't agree with his actions in how he responds to those who oppose the Bible. Next, we see another group of people in verse 9 and 10. Next slide. Born servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not peering but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Saviour. This section, the earlier section, seems to address family members of different age and gender. So why are born servants included here? Well, I believe born servants, Paul includes the born servants here for two reasons. First, that the born servants are people transformed by God. So they are now considered to be part of God's family. Secondly, 
even though bond servants are lowly in status and they are often overlooked by society because of their lowly status, Paul included them because they have a very important witness to play in the way they live out their lives. The bond servants are instructed to be submissive to their own masters in everything, regardless of whether their masters, the master is a believer or not, fair or not, worthy or unworthy of respect. The bond servants are instructed to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not peer-fearing, don't steer from your master, but showing all good faith to show that they can be fully trusted. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if bond servants are to do all this, then how much more us who are voluntarily employed for our employers? We are to be well-pleasing, not arguing with our bosses why they give us so much work, know why my, uh, our colleague have a, a promotion, a pay rise, and we didn't get one. And we are not to pilfer away company stationery or time. And we can be fully trusted. We are to be fully trusted even when we work from home, when our bosses are not watching over our shoulders. Because we work not merely to earn a paycheck or put food on the table. We work in a very different way from the world. We work not because to, we want to climb the corporate ladder. We work to show the world how gospel-transformed people look like. So that in everything, we may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. That we may make the gospel attractive to our bosses and co-workers. So brothers and sisters in Christ, don't look down on your status in society. You may be lowly in the eyes of society, a nobody according to the standards of the world, but God may use your godly lives to bear a powerful witness to the world. So, in summary for this part, a transformed life is established by God's words. And a transformed life makes the gospel attractive to others. Next, we see, but with the horrible reputation of the Cretans, what makes Paul so confident that their lives can be fully transformed and make a positive impact for the gospel? Well, because of verses 11 to 14, or 15 rather, the basis for godly living is seen in this section. Why do we live godly lives? Paul starts with the word for or because. Because of this, for this, for what? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Next slide. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us, from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Next. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Titus. See, the change that makes the biggest impact in our lives is not old age 
but the appearing, the appearance of the grace of God. But what is this grace of God? Well, we know that Paul is referring to the first advent, the first appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can, I, uh, can you please move back uh, to slide verse 11? Verse 11, thank you. So, the, is the first advent, the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is the appearance of the grace of God. But Paul could also be referring to the gospel, the means of how Jesus is now made known to the, the Cretans and to us. And three things, three things we learn about God's grace in this section. Uh, fast forward to the slide which says grace saves. The first is that grace saves. In all, the more technical term, salvation. In verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. We see that grace is not just an unconditional love of God's unconditional love to the undeserving, but it is God's living and active power to save. See, we were once enslaved to sin, but grace saved us and set us free. And grace saves us both from both the penalty of sin and the power of sin. We see in Titus chapter 3, verse 3 to 5, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, He saved us. Here we see that grace is God's divine appearance as well as God's divine intervention because fallen, flawed humans like us cannot change and save ourselves. In fact, according to this passage, we are, Paul calls us foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. This is how we were before we know Christ. We were passing our days in malice and envy. We were hated by others and hating one another. But grace, grace brings about transformation when it touched sinner. We know that grace transformed the Apostle Paul from persecutor to preacher of the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9 and 10, this is what Paul wrote about himself. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. You want to just count from this passage alone how many times the word, the grace of God, appears? Three times. If the grace of God can change a persecutor of the church to a preacher of the church, to become a great apostle for Jesus Christ, then no one should fall under the impossible to be saved category. Not drug addicts, not hardcore criminals, not people who are adulterous or involved in homosexuality, 
not people who are greedy, arrogant, proud. Uh, I have a maternal uncle. I recall he was uh, staunchly opposed. He staunchly opposed Christianity, and so when uh, when he's, he has he had, uh, he has three daughters, and so when his uh, one of his daughter uh, uh, wanted to get married in church, he refused to walk her down the aisle, even on the night before the, the, the wedding. He still stubbornly refused to walk her down the aisle. And he actually threatened his wife, my auntie, that if she were to believe in Jesus, he would, be, he would do something nasty to her. And I recall when my parents became Christians, uh, he was one of the primary mocker of my parents. But I thank God that by God's sovereignty, his life was transformed. And... Uh, a couple of years ago, he, he was stricken with cancer. And at his deathbed, he gave his life to Jesus. And I had the privilege to conduct his funeral a couple of years back. So no one should fall under the impossible to be safe category. So brothers and sisters in Christ, if you still have not believed in Jesus, regardless of your past, God is extending that same salvation to you today. Whereas for us believers, since God has offered salvation, make salvation available to all people, in our evangelism, in our reaching out to people, let's not condemn anyone and withhold salvation from them by thinking that they, they, they cannot be saved. And so we say no on behalf of them to Jesus. God's grace has the power to change through the gospel through Jesus Christ. So those of us who have already believed in, in Jesus, don't be proud. God didn't save us because we are good. Like the Apostle Paul, we need God's grace. And even Paul recognises that. What more about us? Next, we see grace trains. In verse 12, tells us that grace is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Early on, grace is a saviour. Here, grace is a teacher. Grace is training us. It is a present active verb. It is continuously training us. When? In this present age, right here, right now, grace is at work training us. Do not think that you have been a Christian for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. So we, we, we don't need grace. We have graduated from God's grace. We have not. We need His grace every day. We will feel Him from time to time. But we can always keep running back to God every single day. Training us for what? Grace trains us for two things. First, grace trains us to say no to ungodliness to renounce what we used to be, ungodly. So what is ungodliness? Ungodliness is the cancelling out of God in our lives. Where we live in a, in a way where God has nothing to do with our lives whatsoever. No, it's, it's my achievement. No, uh, I, I'm now in a very good, I have a very good job, uh, a high-flying job. No, it's all about how brilliant I am. Nothing to do with God all have to do with my body. This is my body. 
I want to trash it whatever way I want. You know, I, I want to take whatever I want. It has nothing to do with God. Living this way is an insult to our Creator. It's considered ungodly because we cancel God out from our lives. Secondly, grace trains us to say no to worldly passions. See, if ungodliness is the cancelling out of God, then worldly passions is the substitution of God in our lives with something else, where we replace God with this world, this present age. To live, to think, to plan, to act as if this age, this life, is all there is. And oftentimes, we disguise our worldly passions as respectable sins. No, we disguise our greed, our materialism. No, we, we spend lots of money on this present age, where we spend uh, money basically on ourselves, you know, for leisure, for, for holiday, but we don't care about the matters of God. Instead of spending our money and investing our money on things of eternal value. So, if you have not, uh, noticed that we are building ARPC at Tengah, it is our privilege to give to the gospel, the, the gospel work at ARPC at Tengah, to give to the proclamation of the gospel. And oftentimes, we also spend a lot of time on ourselves. We game away, you know, we binge-watch on, on net, Netflix, we golf away our retirement, we waste our God-given life away instead of investing time on God and His words. Where worldly passion blinds us to God and to the needs of others. Well, the antidote to worldly passion is godliness. To reflect God to the world, in verse 12, we are to renounce, well, not just to renounce ungodliness, but we are to embrace godly living. We are to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. We are to start living for God and things that matters to God. And we see that grace redeems us for good works. In verse 13 and 14, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Can I have the next slide? So between the first appearance of the grace of God, the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in the appearing of his future glory, what are we to do? We are called to godly living in this present age. Actually, verse 13 tells us we are to wait faithfully for God's, for Jesus' return. We are not to shake legs and do nothing while we wait, but we are to be people who are zealous for good works. And on, on his first coming, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify us for himself. For what purpose? So that we are to be a people for his own possession. We have been saved for good works. And so you may ask, what exactly are good works? Well, we see 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, which 
use a very a similar phrase to what Paul is using in Titus. Next slide. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who call you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Good works, as defined here, is to declare God's praises, to tell the nation how great our God is, how he saved us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are saved by a holy God, by a God of love, by a God of light, to reflect his light, his holiness, his love in this world, to be a witness to the world of being God's transformed people. Our good works is not the fruit of uh, our good works is the fruit of our salvation, the evidence that you and I are truly transformed by God's words and works in our Lord Jesus Christ. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, the change that makes the greatest impact on the world is not COVID-19. It's not OH, but the appearance of God's grace in Jesus Christ proclaimed to us through the gospel and now on display to the world, seen in the church. And on his second coming, our Lord Jesus will come back as king and judge, and he will hold us accountable to how we live our redeemed lives. Are we waiting faithfully or are we worldly? So God help us. Let us pray. Father God, you are a holy God and you redeem us to be your holy people by the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have been purified and made right before you. Father, we thank you for revealing Jesus to us by sending him into this world, by revealing who he is to us through the gospel, helping us to understand the gospel through the Holy Spirit. Father, find us faithful in living our lives. Even as you, you are a holy God, help us to live holy lives, to reflect godliness to this world. Help us not to be led astray by this world, that we will be holy people, godly people, and not worldly people. And that in our living, the gospel can be seen in our lives and made attractive to the people around us. First to our own families, then to our co-workers and friends. And we pray that through our living, your name will be glorified and many will be drawn to our Lord Jesus Christ. Teach us, O Lord, to reflect your holiness because you are a holy God. For we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.